For the second week in a row, I will make a Lord of the Rings reference, and this time from The Return of the King. In the middle of the story, there's um, a pretty big battle that is brewing, this battle of Minas Tirith, this, this battle of uh, all the orcs and all the bad guys of every sort, the pirates, everybody else, um, all coming to blows with the, the kingdom of men for the most part. And this great battle is, is brewing uh, that's right in the middle of the storyline of the book and the movie. And at some point, uh, the day before the battle, Gandalf is standing out sort of on this balcony of the kingdom with Pippin, one of the hobbits. And the clouds start billowing that much more. Pippin notes that the stars are no longer in sight. And Pippin will go on to say, it's so quiet. To which Gandalf replies, it's the deep breath before the plunge. And the fear and tension is growing, and you see Pippin kind of stare out. He sees the volcano way off in the distance. And he says, I don't want to be in a battle, but waiting on the edge of one I can't escape is even worse. And it's this poignant scene leading up to one of the greatest battles in the whole storyline. And Jesus, in this final week, has this sort of moment, this deep breath before the plunge in a garden. This moment where there's dark clouds forming. And in many ways, Gethsemane, in, in some sense, functions as harder to Jesus than even cavalry will. These dark hours of Jesus' life, because from here on out, there's some decisiveness as if the spiritual battle, he knows he's going to go fight, um, and he set his course. But here in Gethsemane, he's had a fork in the road. It is here that Jesus could pack up. He could head back to Galilee. He could be done with his ministry and go live out his life however he wants in a different way. But it's that or stay and be arrested, tried, beaten, mocked, crucified, and die. And so we're going to get a peek into one of these final moments in the last 12, 14 hours of Jesus' life at this point. So let's look there. Matthew 26. We're going to look at Matthew's account of this story. Matthew 26, starting at verse 36. I do encourage you to go to your Bibles, but uh, we will have the Scripture on the screen as well. It's one of the longest chapters in all of Scripture. And it starts this way, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. So stop there. At some point you're going to be like, we're never going to get through this passage. Um, but they go to this place called Gethsemane. So let's set at least a little bit of this scene. It would have been a full moon at this point. Uh, that's kind of how Jewish lunar calendar would have worked with Passover. Uh, a night of a full moon and Jesus has just celebrated Passover with his disciples. We looked at that last week. He's got this upper room, uh, and him and his disciples walk through this Passover experience. But it was no ordinary Passover at all. Jesus has redefined or connected all of these elements as part of that celebration to himself. It was unique. And at some point, they leave that upper room, which is likely near the Temple Mount. 
They're crossing back over the Kindred Valley, at least according to the Gospel of John. That would have been their path at this moment in time. It's also important to note that um, the temple would have started the process of sacrificing the lambs because they had so many to do. <clears throat> and the Kidron Valley becomes a little bit of the runoff for the temple. And so uh, during the rainy season, which is the end of the rainy season, uh, the watery creek uh, that would have gone through the valley uh, likely would have been filled with the blood of the lambs and Jesus is crossing over. Jesus passes over this valley and ends up on the other side, which is the Mount of Olives. Uh, and there, there's a garden, according to Luke, Gethsemane, according to Matthew and Mark. Now, there creates a little bit of debate of the exact nature of this place. There's certainly a place there now. You can go visit. It's this little garden area. <clears throat> but Gethsemane itself is a regular word. It's, it's the word get, which means a press, uh, like um, a weighted press of some sort, like like something you would use to extract something out of. And uh, semini, or seminem, which is oil, or oils. And so the name of this place was simply oil press. It's a generic word. It's a totally usable word. There are other places in Israel called Gethsemane. It's just the location of an oil press. So likely, this is a garden of olive trees, some sort of plot of land with olive trees on it, with likely an olive press as well. This is where Jesus goes. Now, it would make a lot of sense in the storyline. <coughs> Olives uh, are a fall crop, uh, so the press would likely be, not be used in any way, shape, or form during this season. And when you have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people traveling to Jerusalem at the time, uh, most olive presses are enclosed uh, for the sake of the purity of the oil. And so uh, they're caves or they're enclosed structures. And, so, um, and we find out that Jesus made a custom of going to this place at evening. And so it was likely that this is a place that him and his disciples were actually sort of pulled up. Uh, they, they either, maybe the person who owned the press said, hey, I like your teachings. Why don't you come and stay here? Maybe they rented it. We, we don't know. But um, it is a likely outcome. Hence why uh, when, when um, um, Judas uh, goes away at dinner time, he knows just where to find Jesus, um, even though he doesn't know that they're going to this garden at this point. And, and so uh, Judas leaves knows just where they're staying, and brings them there. And so this is where they will be. Now, we should catch the very symbolism of an olive press, the very thing that crushes the olive in order to extract oil for the sake of something else. Not only that, but at Passover, they would have sung uh, these Hillel psalms, these collection of psalms, and the last one they would have sung as part of traditional Passover in the first century was Psalm 118 which reads, when hard-pressed, I cried out to God. Would have been one of the last songs that Jesus sang before going to this garden. It should be something of note. There's a lot of symbolism just in the name Gethsemane. But let's keep going. So then Jesus went on to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And they said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now, I don't know if you know this as well, but the night uh, after eating a Passover meal, that night has a name. It's a very specific night. It's Leel Shemarim. It's its own unique night. 
And it's connected to instructions that God gave them as they left or as they um, waited the evening of the first Passover. In Exodus 12, it says this, It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is the night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So this night, this night a thousand years before Jesus, when this angel of death was going to pass over, and if you had your blood on your doorpost, you would be safe, and if not, it's bad news. Imagine being an Israelite, waiting to see what God was actually going to do. You've heard the instructions. You've, you've heard that, that, that if you just put the blood on the doorpost, you will be safe. And imagine you're sitting in your house and you start hearing cries dotted throughout the neighborhood of those who didn't have blood on their doorpost. And you're waiting, you're watching to see if God will actually follow through. If this angel will pass over your household. God will keep his word if God himself is watching over. So every Jew would spend the night staying up, waiting. They would eat their Passover meal and then they would watch to see, maybe like Psalm 121, to see if the God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And Jesus gets his disciples, at least the three closest, and says, watch with me. This is the night of watching. Come, let's watch. And he went off to pray. Post-Passover, maybe wondering what Yahweh would do. And Jesus is sorrowful, troubled, deeply distressed. Or as the gospel writer Mark adds, in, in deep fear or terror. It's strong, it's, it's visceral language. It's absolutely visceral and emotional language of Jesus at this moment on this night. Now we have to remember, Jesus is God. Fully God. I think the Bible makes that clear. I think um, our, our doctrine, our history would point that out, leading even back to some of the first arguments in the church. He is fully God. But we also believe that he is fully man. Jesus was fully a human. That Jesus, as, as Philippians will point out, that Jesus comes to this earth, that he empties himself, uh, that he takes a form of a servant and our likeness in human form. It's actually probably an idea we don't appreciate enough about his Jesus, about his humanness. I think sometimes we make him out to be this sort of stoic, serene, always tapped into his divine side, and sometimes we struggle with just his human nature. And I think Jesus' human nature, not divorced from his divine nature, but is staring down the next 12 hours of his life. Perhaps realizing tonight will be the night. Tonight's the night that he came into the world for. And what triggered this sense of sorrow and sadness and everything else? Maybe crossing that kindred valley and seeing the blood of the lambs, knowing that it will be his blood as the greater lamb. Maybe passing all the tombs, the, uh, um, Mount Olivet's covered in tombs. Um, there's, there's always been the theology that um, 
when the Messiah comes, he will come to Mount Olive first. It's tied into Zechariah and others. And so people put their tombs there thinking, well, they get to be first to the party if they just put their tombs right there. And so Mount Olive is covered in tombs. And Jesus likely would have walked past all these tombs knowing that he will be in a tomb in 12 to 18 hours. Maybe it's just staring down. Betrayal. His friends leaving him, getting tried, getting beaten, getting put on the cross and dying. Whatever it may be, it has brought him to anguish, to troubledness, to sorrowful. And even this becomes an important moment for the writer of Hebrews. There's a larger section where the writer is speaking of Jesus being as this great priest, that this, this great representative between us and God, but that he's able to understand us. He's able to sympathize with us. And he speaks of Jesus, and he mentions that that Jesus offered up prayers and loud cries and tears to the one who can save him. I would argue the writer of Hebrews is referring to this very moment. I think sometimes in our theology, we miss out on the fact that by the time the last book of the New Testament is written, 11 of the 12 disciples have died. Jesus has died. Paul has died. All of them suffered and died in their perfect obedience. Jesus' perfect obedience and then the disciples' obedience to what they're called to be. Jesus knows pain, suffering, disappointment, loneliness, abandonment, betrayal. Something that comes to knock on many of our doors. When life is not going up and to the right, (laughs) the God of the universe can sympathize. And we live in a culture right now where any form of sort of pain or hardship is treated as like the worst possible thing. The goal of life right now is just to fine-tune your experience so much that your uh, circumstances and problems simply go away and then your inner self can be happy. Then you could be free from anxiety, whatever else might be going on. And I will tell you, if your strategy to make your inner world okay is to make your outer world okay, that is a strategy doomed to fail. It's only a, ma- it's, it's only a matter of when and not if. Some sociologists even say the primary American emotion is disappointment. And it perhaps it's because as Americans we often have this view of progress, which I would even argue is this odd secular view, that life is on this forward march, this Darwinian view, economic sort of capitalistic view, that everything is going to get better, onward, upward, and we're always in this trajectory. And then when those things don't happen, we don't know what to do with ourselves. And some of that's even invaded some of our theology, the sort of sloppy theology that encourages people to live by faith, but it's a, a failed version of a prosperity or even karmic gospel. That Jesus wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy. But that's not the gospel of Jesus. That's the gospel of upward mobility. And so we see in our Savior, one who does suffer. And the gospel writer is going out of his way to, to remind us, all of them, all four of them, going out of their way to tell us about this moment in the garden where Jesus weeps and cries sweating so profusely it's like bloody sweat. 
And we'll get to some of the gospel implications to this as well. But at the same time, there's a pattern set before us of Christ in the midst of this sorrow, in the midst of this hurt, and how he navigates it that I think become a pattern for us. The first is in our suffering, we should desire community. It's very much what Jesus did. He's, he's like, I'm in, I'm in anguish, fellas. I'm in hurt. Come. Come watch with me. Let's go together. Like sometimes we forget Jesus' fully human sign that he, he, he relies on the community around him. He's, he's asking them, I can't do this alone, guys. Come be with me right now. I really need you. And I think the same is true for us. I think too often people in their struggles and their hurts and their pains don't want to be a burden to other people, don't want other people to know some of their business. But I think the very thing we're invited into doing as a family of God is to do this very thing. There's so many one another's we are called to, to practice together. So if you are struggling and you're doing it in a way that no one really knows, and you're isolated, stop. That's what we're for. I think too many people walk away from the church because they are suffering and struggling and doing it on their own, and it raises all sorts of doubts. There's no one to walk through it with. There's no one to process it all with, whatever it may be. And so my encouragement is, if it's a really hard season, that's what the body of Christ is for. Number two, he gives God his emotions. Jesus comes with all of this turmoil and all these moments to pray to his Father. It's what I really love about praying through a book like Psalms. Psalms gives the full breadth of emotion, whether it's anger, whether it's sadness and what feels like the, the dark season or dark night of the soul. Suffering, questioning, all of it is there for us to express. God is big enough for all your emotion. <laughs> and then we should come to him with all of it. Next, he gives God his desires. Like we, we will see, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, Jesus has spoken about his death. He's spoken about what is coming. And yet he sits here and asks his father, I don't know if I want this. Is there another way? Jesus is still sinless, even though he's asking his father, is there another way to do this? To only have a sort of fatalist view of circumstances. That, hey, suffering's come, just deal with it. There's something for you to learn. Move forward. Great, there might be something to learn from it. But at the same time, Jesus has given us a, a model that says, sometimes it's okay to go, hey, I don't want this. Paul does the same thing. He had the thorn in the flesh, and he asked, I don't want this at all, God. He even wrote down in the letter, hey, I asked for this multiple times, and God didn't take it away. It's okay to bring God your desires, not knowing whether your desires line up with God's plan. But the final step is that we would give God our trust. Jesus' final statement, it's not by my will, but yours. Jesus had other desires, but his deepest desire, the deepest thing that he ultimately wanted was his Father's will. 
And if we have the Spirit of God in us, that desire does exist in you. And you may try to bury it and you may try to suppress it, but the deepest desire to do God's will. Jan Johnson describes what Jesus is doing as sort of letting go of outcomes, trusting his Father with the plan and the execution of that plan. St. Ignatius of Loyola says, uh, we should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one, for everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. Our only desire and our one choice should be this, I want and I choose what better leads to God's deepening life in That's getting our minds around the priority of God's will. Let's keep going. Verse 39. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, if you remember last week, a traditional um, Passover meal would have included four cups, or sort of four different movements of God. Uh, according to, to Exodus. But did you know there was debate about a fifth cup? There was debate about another cup that might have been at that table. A, a debate about what the prophets had spoken of, like Jeremiah 25. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Or as a psalmist would say, like, pour out your wrath on the nations. This cup that became this debate around this cup of, of judgment, of wrath itself. A cup that was poured out on Pharaoh and his armies. This cup of God's response to sin and injustice. And the rabbis debated whether to include this cup because they had heard throughout the prophets about this, that someday God's cup of wrath was going to be poured out on sin and injustice in some ways, on, on rebellion. It's going to be his fury. And they argued. And at some point, they got around to being like, we don't know the answer to this, but you know who's going to have the answer to this? Elijah. <laughs> and so they thought, once this, the representative of the prophets finally comes back one day, that he, he can help sort this out. And so they started putting a fifth cup at the table. And if you've ever gone to a modern-day Seder, there's Elijah's cup is usually included at the table. It's this empty cup waiting uh, for an answer. But its origin is this very conversation of this cup of wrath and what are we supposed to do with it? And Jesus comes into this garden and he starts speaking about a cup, a cup that he does not want to take. And he keeps praying. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. So three times, Jesus goes away and has these prayers. Now we're not going to spend time on Peter's story of denial, but it's pretty juxtaposed. Peter has these anguishing, obedient moment conversations with his father, 
And Peter will three times screw things up when asked about his association with Jesus. But Jesus goes and prays, seeks his father out three times. And you got to imagine, the way it's described is just this, the, the words used for Jesus' emotions are some of the, the in-depth, hard even to, um, to define terror, desperation. So I think we, we probably don't even give credit for the wording of Jesus here. At some point, or the emotion of that wording, at some point it's, it's just desperate. Knowing that there's this cup, this fifth cup, and that he's going to drink it. It's as if he's saying, no! No, not that cup. Of all the cups, can that one pass? No. But if you want me to, Father, I will. And he drank it. And that cup, every last drop, it's empty. When he hung on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the drinking of this cup. To the point where he says, it is finished. This cup. God's response to, to sin. God's right response to, to what is rebellion against him and justice. This cup that each one of us should be the ones drinking was taken by Jesus himself. And on that cross, Jesus, who knew no sin, will be made to be sin. And all the sort of filth and rot of the human race, the immeasurable and foul weight of that, of human history, is poured out on Jesus' perfect and spotless soul. And his heavenly Father, with whom he has only known perfect and unbroken fellowship from eternity past, will turn, as, as we sing in one of our hymns, will turn his face away from him, will abandon him. And with his face towards the way, poured out all of his hatred of sin upon Jesus. All the human suffering and agony through history, combined with the the eternal torment of being forever separated from God. Put that all on a scale and when Jesus faced would still be weightier. In Gethsemane, the weight of what Jesus would face presses down on his soul until he's nearly crushed under its weight. Gethsemane is the right word. It's this press, like an oil press, crushing what's underneath for the benefit of others. And there's this connection to the garden, which is always interesting, and we'll see the garden again at the resurrection. But in one garden, you have the first Adam, offered nothing but abundance in God's presence promised to him. If he'd only obey one thing, and yet he failed. And in the second garden, the second Adam, as Paul calls him, had nothing but pain suffering and death promised to him if he would only do one thing, obey.
And Jesus, unlike that first Adam, succeeded. And what do we get then by faith? We get what's originally promised to Adam. God's presence with us by faith. So, one of the only instructions in this text is actually Jesus' words to the disciples. Stay awake. 17 other times, not including in the Gethsemane story, uh, were instructed as the church or as disciples to stay awake, to stay alert, to keep watch. The early church fathers actually called this nepsis, this practice of watching, of understanding um, all that's going on around you, your circumstances, the things that enter your mind, all those sort of things, and thinking through whether they are of God or not. This watchfulness, this alertness to the very substance of life. Practice of what I think Paul means when he says, take every thought captive. Every thought should be able to bring under whether this is part of the kingdom or not. St. Theophan says, um, stand at the door of your heart and watch carefully everything that enters and goes out from there. Or St. Seraphim says, the mind of an attentive person, as it were, uh, a guardian, a watchman. Um, uh, The mind of an attentive person is a guardian or a a vigilant guardian of inner Jerusalem. Or uh, Avagrius Apontus says, be the doorkeeper of your heart and do not let any thought come in without questioning it. Question each thought individually. Are you on our side or the side of our foes? And if it is one of ours, it will fill you with tranquility. We are in a very easily distracted world right now. There's just so many other things vying for our attention. It's schedules and work and classes and kids and sports and shows to watch and things to binge and everything that will keep us distracted from all things. But the instruction is to keep watch, to stay alert. And are the things that we are doing, are the things that consume our mind, our time, our emotions, all of it, Are they the things of heaven or not? In the first Passover, God redeemed his people, saved them from Egypt, protected them uh, from death by the lamb, and then ultimately took them out to Sinai to give them instructions on what it means to be his people, his nation, how they can reflect Yahweh. And for us, we have a new Passover in Jesus' blood. God once again redeemed his people, but... The difference right now is he did it by pouring out this cup. Like there's, there's nothing you have to do at this point. That's, that's the freedom of the gospel itself, that Jesus took the cup on himself. It is finished. It's empty. As we sing in In Christ Alone, another song we sing around here, the wrath of God is, is satisfied. But now, go walk as Jesus walked. Live as Jesus lived. We have a a sort of new reset of the law in some ways, or reset refining of it. But now we are free under this new instruction. As disciples, we're told to obey his words, his teachings, and to go, live it out. So in the story, we do remember a God, that our God is a God who is well familiar with suffering, 
And if that's you walking in here today, just know, we don't have an aloof God. We don't have a God who is distant and um, non-understanding, who's sort of transcendent and other all the time. We have a God who understands suffering, who understands a close friend betraying him, the rest of his friends not showing up, being scattered, sin. He's, he's acquainted with it, even though he did not sin himself. Temptation, loneliness, all of it. And so, may that be part of the lesson today, but at the same time, may we be watchful, knowing ultimately what Jesus took on with that cup, that we are now set free to live out a new and true life, but at the same time, may we do it. It costs Jesus dearly. But on the other side, we are now set free to, to live as we properly should. The way we were designed to. The way that lives to the most flourishing of all lives. Even if circumstances are terrible. There's an inner peace, an inner life with God that's not contingent upon all those things.